Chapter 8 Marie had come into the cafe, hoping Otto wouldn't be there. When she saw him, she slipped her phone back into her handbag. She didn't approach him. He was moving strangely from side to side. She wanted to leave, but she also wanted to observe him. He was trying to put a padded envelope into his jacket pocket. It was clearly too large. He switched his efforts from the left side pocket to the right side pocket. He tried the inner pockets. Although he was being methodical, the reasons for his movements were so impenetrable they couldn't be guessed at. His determination to achieve the impossible might have been endearing had Marie's regard of him not been so jaded. He was grayer and more jowly than he used to be, yet he seemed to be as stubborn as ever. The Spitzenhof was at its busiest. Another woman, a few tables away, was looking at Otto as well. Her amused eyes peeked over the rim of her book. What he was doing was comical, and in Marie's opinion, rather unloyally. The envelope was beginning to rip on one side. Otto seemed prepared to extend the damage to his suit, if that's what it was going to take to hide the envelope. Other than on their wedding day, Marie had never seen him in a suit. She found herself wondering how he'd managed the transition from the genes of his youth. She hadn't realized she was pursing her lips. The language of gestures is normally precise and requires little or no explanation. But this gradual tightening of the muscles around Marie's mouth was not as distinctive in its meaning as it might have been. Coming from her, it conveyed a conflicted message. She was sure she wanted to leave. She wouldn't have wanted to concede anything to this man from the past she hardly knew anymore. At the same time, she was unforgivably uncertain. She didn't think she could leave without talking to him about all the predictions he'd made. The fact is, all of it had come true. It was as if the person Marie didn't want to discuss anything with had performed a magic trick and she couldn't leave without knowing how he'd done it. Despite the broad range of possible messages, it could be said that Marie's tight-lipped expression was rooted in just one emotion. More than anything, she felt anger. Her whole being was reduced to the farcical pinpoint of this single encounter in the cafe that afternoon. He might have predicted it would happen this way, but Marie was indignant at having to meet with Otto Loser on his terms. It was well after half past one. If she sat down for a coffee, she'd be late back to work. The way she was being monitored at the office, it would be noticed. It might become a disciplinary matter. She could lose her job, and then there would be hell to pay. Yet she stood her ground. The barking was soft. It had been going on since she'd come into the cafe. It was a plaintive sound, produced by a creature sprawled over the floor, two tables down from Otto's table. Its head was propped on the left shoe of its owner, an elderly woman engrossed in conversation on her phone. Each declaration the dog made had a curious echo. Rather than the staccato finish dogs normally favor, this was a soft hiccup of a bark, 
or two barks rolled into one, as if the dog was trying to justify to itself a recent episode where it had been necessary to bark more aggressively. Otto was onto a different strategy with the unwieldy envelope. He'd succeeded in forcing the ends together. It was more compact now, but the tear had become wider, revealing the bubble wrap inside. Seeing the damage he'd done to the envelope made him grit his teeth and suck his breath. It was a performance any ape might have understood as the precursor to distress. There had always been an unpredictable element to Otto's impatience. With an increasing sense of revulsion, Marie recalled this and other traits he had. He would sweat when things went wrong. His eyes would go blank. And still she couldn't leave because each recollection she had was neutralized by the uniquely strange fact that Otto had told her nearly 20 years before what would happen to them over the course of their lives. It was uncanny. He'd known practically everything there was to know. To the best of Marie's recollection though, Otto had never mentioned an envelope. Having an envelope in the cafe was something he hadn't predicted. It was because he seemed so bothered about it now that Marie felt she had to know what was in it. To her amazement, he held it out for the dog to take. He was leaning under his table, wriggling the envelope, nodding his head, trying to entice the dog to come and get it. The dog went on woofing quietly, but its eyes followed the package being waved in its face. Still bent over, Otto suddenly raised his head. He must have known Marie was standing behind him. He sat up quickly and held the envelope down to his side, propping it against his chair leg. As he turned to face her, his guilt made his features go numb. His expression shaped itself into a reluctant acknowledgement of her presence, while his thoughts traveled through the maze of being able to remember so much about this moment. Marie behaved as if she'd only just arrived. She broke into a walk. One of the waiters crossed her path. She ordered a double espresso. The waiter kept going, but he waved his hand dismissively. The noises around them intensified into a clamor of shouts and thuds and clinks and clunks. Marie walked up to Otto's table. Even before she sat down, she said, what's in the envelope? Otto couldn't maintain the vacant expression he thought was masking his feelings. His lips began to tremble. Still holding the envelope to the underside of his chair, he responded with his eyebrows. By tightening the muscles along his forehead, he would ordinarily have been indicating confusion. But Otto's use of the gesture was disingenuous. He knew very well that Marie was referring to the object he'd been trying to get rid of. I've been waiting so long, he said. I'm sorry, I was delayed at work. No, I mean for this. For what? For this to happen. Marie was feeling defensive. She'd committed herself to pretending not to understand him. She recoiled her neck and shook her head. For what to happen, she said. But she knew exactly what Otto meant and hated his smile the more for it. 
His smile was classically executed. When he was younger, he used to smile like that. Then he'd stopped smiling altogether. Anyway, she went on, there isn't much time. You only just got here. It seems to me you only just got here. Otto's attempts at a disarming smile had gone on for too long. To Marie, each new part of his childish grin was more infuriating. That's what you said when I came out of my coma. What are you talking about? Don't you remember, he was saying, in the hospital. Can you stop that? Stop what? That stupid face. I didn't mean anything. Everything has a meaning. Fine, I won't make a face. Good. We were talking about what happened. When? When you came to England. Marie glared. It's all she felt she could do. When I said, you just got here, and you said, no, you just got here. I don't know what you mean, Marie said. She looked away. It was as close as she could get to walking away. Just as she'd feared, this was turning out to be the most unpleasant conversation she could imagine having. Not because of the conciliatory tone Otto was taking, or because of her need to respond negatively, but because of the context that overshadowed her life. Otto had known, when he'd left her, that by the winter of 2019, she would be living in quiet desperation. You must remember what you said, he insisted. It was three years ago, but it happened. Why are you here? You know exactly. No, I don't. I was always going to come back. You say that as if it was inevitable. I didn't make it up. Although Otto spoke these words with only a hint of the finality he felt, Marie was sufficiently alarmed by his raised tone to lean back in her seat. Two decades before, she'd witnessed this man's total breakdown. She'd gone on to survive that disastrous period in their lives she still thought of as ground zero. She'd moved on with her life, but the detonations hadn't stopped damaging her, even now. It was why the mere suggestion of Otto's craziness was enough to cause her stomach muscles to clench. You know why I'm here, he repeated more soberly. She nodded, but she still couldn't breathe freely. It was true that he'd told her this would happen. He'd told her everything. He'd told her about her boyfriend and the shocking rift between their children. Yet, despite the fact that these things had come about, exactly as Otto had said they would, Marie still couldn't bring herself to believe it. It occurred to her that the picture of her life was a puzzle. All of the pieces were in place. The puzzle was complete, but the image it depicted defied all logic. You said you'd come back, she said flatly. I knew I would. And because you knew, that makes it better? I understand your anger. You think so? I wish it could be different. As a young woman, even as a girl, Marie had relished the prospect of having children. 
she could remember how pleasing it was to imagine living with a handsome man. Yet nothing in her formative years could have prepared her for a relationship in which each of its disasters had been known about long before they happened. The way she interpreted it, Otto had gone mad. The madness began shortly after Izzy's birth. She'd made appointments for him to see their doctor. He never went. With the conviction of an evangelist, Otto began predicting things in 1999 which nobody in their right minds could have taken seriously, as if anyone could have seen back then what 2019 would look like. Marie tried to control herself. If she could manage Otto's predictions at all, it was by thinking of them as self-fulfilling. Had he not predicted what was coming, none of it would have happened. By imagining what the future held in store, he'd been directing them all from the outset. She and the children had been drawn tragically into Otto's psychotically imagined future, which meant that he alone must be culpable for the turmoil she was facing. The only aspect about this meeting in the cafe with Marie that Otto appeared not to have foreseen was the padded envelope the contents of which he was clearly anxious to keep hidden from her. So what's in the envelope, she said. You don't want to know. Amuse me. It wouldn't be good. You didn't know about it. Otto didn't answer. I knew it, Marie blurted. Where did you get it? He couldn't think what to say. He felt the tension rising from within the envelope through to his right hand and seeping all the way up his arm. He wanted to protect Marie from the contents, but he didn't know how. What are you so afraid of? Marie snapped. At last, he laid the envelope on the table. I'm afraid of what's in this, he said. I'm as afraid of it as I am of the things I always knew were going to happen. Anything else for the gentleman? The waiter asked. He was tall and wary. He placed Marie's double espresso next to the envelope. He thrust his head forward and to one side. We're fine, Marie said. She said it in a way that made the waiter drift away as smoothly as he'd arrived. In the silence that followed, she pulled the envelope towards her. A few tables over, they could hear the woofing again. They held each other in a questioning gaze until Otto had to look away. He glanced at his wristwatch. It was one minute after two. Rigger's Figures Anton held the heel of the shoe in his mouth and wriggled his body. Jerking the shoe from side to side, he tugged backwards, straining his neck. Although there was a near total absence of light where he was, he'd found what he was looking for easily. It had got itself wedged in a crevice. 
The shoe didn't belong to the crevice, but the crevice was refusing to release it, and because the crevice was being obstinate, Anton growled. The sound he made was like gargling salty water to ease a sore throat. When growling didn't work, he let go of the shoe and barked. He may have been a shaggy mongrel, but Anton's bark was tremendous. It was nuclear. It was still reverberating through the passage as he clamped his jaw around his prize and pulled with all his might. The crevice relented and the shoe came free. Keeping it in his mouth, he backed away to the opposite edge of the tunnel. Only when he was sure that the crevice didn't want the shoe back did he let it fall to the floor. He began to pant. It would be good, he reflected, if the shoe didn't have a silver buckle. The buckle got in the way of his bite and it didn't taste good. It spoiled what was otherwise an irresistible combination of soft, chewy leather and the sour smells of the Frenchman. It would take a few leaps and bounds to reach the dimness where the Frenchman was. Anton wagged his tail at the prospect. Moving energetically filled him with pleasure. He felt incredibly healthy and ready for anything. Being a dog was the most exhilarating experience he'd ever had. He couldn't imagine how he'd ever felt listless before. He suffered none of the usual aches and pains. The stiffness in his joints were a thing of the past. If something hurt now, Anton could yelp and it would fly away. He was lithe and robust and had plenty of dark fur. With a fine white patch on his underside, he liked to lick because it smelled of the detritus of his foraging. When he sniffed the Frenchman's shoe, the strongest scent he caught was of victory. It was a warm, oily smell that made his tail waggle all the more. He bit down hard on the leather and shook his head, recalling what it had been like to do battle with the formidable crevice. The memory made him growl, but then he remembered that the rules of the game required him to take immediate action. Satisfied that his errand had been accomplished, he trotted back along the passage, holding his prize proudly aloft. He took himself towards the dimness where he would give up the shoe to the Frenchman with his compliments. His barks were thunderous in the cave. Even his panting resonated like a bellows. His toenails clicking against the rocks as he scuttled along evoked a period far into the future when there had only been keyboards to write books on. The background to the sound of typing was a luscious and syncopated one. It was made by the streams that gathered and trickled along the uneven floors before dropping down shafts deep into the earth. But Anton didn't have time to dwell on the euphony of the cave. The soundscape may have been eerie and fascinating to anyone prepared to listen, but its impact on him was frankly minimal. It wasn't only that he could dash about as if he was a child again, it was that he was so convinced of everything he did. He felt more optimistic than he could ever have thought possible. Nothing beat being able to leap over boulders and charge around corners. He could chase his tail too. 
or he could participate in the diverting activity called fetching the thrown away shoe. In these distractions, to the very last breath, Anton felt so wonderfully confident that it made him want to bark just for the hell of it. His senses were enhanced as well, and none more so than his sense of smell. The scent of things was a dimension so intricate and alive, it became the primary focus for the writer's new perception of the world. As far as he was concerned, nothing was dead unless it couldn't be smelled. Far away things might be dead, or things he only remembered in pictures, but everything else was alive. The rocky crevice clutching the Frenchman's shoe had been an exceptionally vibrant living thing. It had given off unforgettable tones of damp burnt toast and curdled milk. The shoe itself was still ripe with those smells. So delighted was Anton with his new prowess, and so certain of everything was he, that he'd forgotten what it was like to be beleaguered by doubt, or to have to wear items of clothing. The dimness where the Frenchman was came from a table in the great soaring cavity. The cavity was in the middle of a system of passages. Working under the glimmer of just a few candles, the Frenchman was hunched over his table. He was entering fresh calculations into the margins of a map he was drawing. His name was Rigobert Bonn. That Anton should have happened across an eminent 18th century cartographer deep within the cave came as no surprise to him. Before he'd turned himself into a dog, the theme of map-making as a colonialist enterprise was just one of the meandering strands embedded in the book he'd been stuck on. They'd encountered one another shortly after he'd begun to nose around the cave he'd found himself in. Anton was pleasantly surprised at how quickly the two of them had been able to hit it off. Had he still been a humdrum human, establishing friendly relations with a distracted Frenchman would have been all but impossible. Now, making friends was easy. The capacity to treat strangers with equanimity, no matter what the circumstances, was the princely domain of the hound. He let the shoe drop to the floor and tilted his head sideways. This was a gesture of inquiry universal to mammals, but the bone refused to acknowledge it. Inevitably, Anton had begun to think of the Frenchman as the bone. As well as wagging his tail, he let his jaw hang so his tongue could swing freely from his mouth. But it seemed the bone had other matters to attend to. When it came to the sport of throwing his shoe back into the gloom for Anton to fetch, the fellow was not as single-minded as he might have been. Without breaking his concentration, or even lifting his head, he mumbled in French, Well done, Cerberus. Goodbye. Sit. Sit. Anton declined to do anything of the sort. He picked up the buckled shoe, took it a few steps closer to where the bone was standing, and dropped it again. The bone remained uncommunicative. He continued scribbling things down by candlelight. Every now and then he swept his long dark hair from his face. He had a faultless moustache, and his beard was trimmed so that it was confined mostly to his chin. 
He was dressed informally in breeches and yellow stockings with runs in them. His left foot was bare, but he still had his right shoe on. His silk shirt was untied at the neck and stained from hardship and overuse. Rigobert Bonn was using his stockinged foot to stroke the leg of a lion. The legs of his oak table had been carved to look like a lion's paws. Anton refused to look at them in case they moved and he would be compelled to bark aggressively. He might have fooled around with the bone's black gown which lay flopped over the gravel nearby, but he didn't do that either. All he wanted was to be able to run after the shoe again. He could smell the bone's feelings. The smell was fickle and moody, like apples with worms in them. Under the patronage of his king, the Frenchman had risen to the position of greatest cartographer in the world. But to inquire of him where he stood at this very moment would have been to draw a blank. It was an embarrassment, even laughable, that although he could be counted as the best mapmaker in all Christendom, the bone didn't have a clue where he was. There were other reasons to be moody. His ship had gone down in a storm in the Gulf of Mexico. He'd come to his senses in the cave. Poking around with his fingers, he'd found a combination of limestone, sandstone, clay and conglomerates, all of which indicated he was in the depths of a mountain. Not much had been salvaged from the vessel. Luckily, he'd had a pouch with him containing a dry tinderbox and three candles. With the candles lit, he'd been able to find a small traveling chest containing quills, a pot of ink, and a few rolls of paper. Other than that, all the Frenchman had left in the world was a loaf of stale bread and a full flagon of mature cognac, which he occasionally took drafts from. He'd awoken from his ordeal lying under the table, which in itself was a miracle. The table had been part of the furnishings in his cabin. When all had been well with the world, the bone had been using it as a surface on which to draw the final details of his ambitious representation of Le Nouveau Mexique. At one time, this might have interested Anton. As a dog, however, he was unable to give much weight to the fact that, 249 years later, while writing a book called Otto in Flames, he would personally be in a position to study a facsimile of Le Nouveau Mexique in the university library. Apart from being hopelessly lost and not knowing what time it was, what compounded the bone's low mood was the fact that there hadn't been any mountains near the spot where his ship had broken her back on a reef. All he knew for sure was that La Belle Epoque had foundered a few leagues off that part of the northwestern Yucatan coast he'd decided to call Cape Unknown. His timepiece had stopped ticking. It lay on the oak table. Its workings had ceased at one minute past two o'clock, which was presumably the hour his ship had gone down. The presence of a dog with sleepy brown eyes was as much a mystery as everything else about the cave the Frenchman had awoken in. Inexplicably, the animal appeared well cared for. It wasn't vicious or even obnoxious. On the contrary, it had a clever, friendly disposition. 
It was out of a perverse need to be sarcastic that the bone had taken to calling it Cerberus, Keeper of the Underworld. The appearance of the dog turned out to be serendipitous. Rigobert had asked him who his master was, but Anton had merely stared, licking his chops. Even if he'd been able to answer, he wouldn't have been able to come up with anything sensible. All Anton could do was bark. But that was all Anton had to do. It was the bark that caused the bone to react so excitedly. When he first understood its meaning, he slapped his head. Mon Dieu, he'd said, then burst out laughing and patted the dog's back. Mon Dieu. The dog wagged its tail. Even as a four-legged creature, it was apparent to Anton that the bone was in the throes of an inspiration. It was as if the man had been struck by a thunderbolt hurled from the heavens by Urania herself. The idea was simple. As the mapmaker had no instruments with which to make the necessary calculations to draw an accurate representation of the cave he was lost in, a modified version of the technique of dead reckoning now occurred to him. It entailed throwing a shoe systematically down each of the passages leading away from the great cavity and listening for the dog's bark as it scurried off to fetch the shoe. It was simply a matter then of counting the number of seconds it took for the bark to fade away and attributing the time of the echo to the length of each passage the dog was in. Anton couldn't have been more cooperative. He might have been born to chase flying shoes all day long. Using his ingenious new method of echo sounding, the bone had gone on to draft a working image of the cave. It looked something like a web. He was dead in the center. Spreading out from his position were nine passages in all. Some were long and winding, others didn't go further than a few leagues. So far, Anton's bark had demonstrated that six of the passages were dead ends and could be excluded as escape routes. There were just three left. What Rigobert Bonn hoped with all his heart was that at least one of those three remaining passages would see him out of Hades. The candles were burning low. They were beginning to flicker. Undeterred, the bone worked methodically. Hunched over the table with the legs of a lion, he paused only when he thought he heard the strains of an opera coming from somewhere else in the cave. Dismissing the sound as the trickle of water down the walls, he took a swig from his flagon and pressed ahead with his map. Anton flopped to his haunches. He'd stretched his paws out, sphinx-style, and was waiting patiently for the Frenchman to get on with it. He felt excellent. He felt so excellent, he decided this is what it must be like to have no limits. In Anton's brain, having no limits mingled with the idea of possessing everything a dog could smell. He wasn't able to reason anymore that while having everything a dog could smell might be a splendid idea, it excluded everything a dog couldn't smell. I'd made the same mistake myself when I was forced to converse with Promontano at his candlelit table somewhere else in the cave. My condition was nebulous. I was in part of the unseen where the unformed was able to exist and do things. I might have become an eagle for a moment or two, 
but the only form I really knew was the one I already had. When I reverted automatically to myself, I began to understand how Anton and I were similarly fated. We were on a quest to be reunited with the ones we loved. To the exclusion of anything else we could have been, this quest made us what we were. As we ran into each other's perceptions, I realized how boorishly unaware I was of the extent to which our fortunes turned on their own limitations. Rather than becoming unbound, Anton had only imposed another limit on himself. We might say it was because Urania hadn't forgotten him that he began to think of Chapter 9 with any coherence. While he waited for the bone to do something useful with his shoe, the dog was able to formulate much of the next chapter in a succession of pictures and sounds. It was like a dream he could suddenly recall. He saw Marie finding out that I had 30,000 euros in cash, and how I would want her to stay with me in the cafe for a bit longer. As if there were no limits to what a person with funding might achieve, it was then that he made me make a fatuous promise. I told Marie that as long as she agreed to marry me, I would take her wherever she wanted to go. I should never have been so cocksure, but I suppose it was better than grabbing hold of her hand, which is what Anton would have had me do. While his intrigues were those of a dog, it was a dog with an abiding desire to control everything I did. When the bone stooped to pick up his shoe, Anton began to thump his tail against the ground. He could already taste the leather in his mouth. He got up and barked. The bark was sharp and loud. He loved the variegated echo each explosion made, every bit as much as the Frenchman seemed to. The bone was even smiling. He took another gulp from his flagon. Go fetch, he commanded, as if any kind of command was needed. Anton's bark boomed around the cavity they were in. Even before the bone had launched his shoe into the next passage, the dog was on his way, bounding into the darkness. He heard the plopping sound of the shoe ahead. It had fallen somewhere in the narrowing void. He couldn't see where it was. He couldn't see at all. Yet he raced from one side of the passage to the other, sniffing everything. He could definitely smell the shoe. Its scent still wafted in line with the trajectory it had flown in. As Anton searched, however, the scent seemed to evaporate, leaving no trace. Among the few problems he would encounter being a dog, it must be said that he was less inclined to concentrate on any single task anymore. It wasn't that he tired easily in the manner of the septuagenarian he used to be, Rather, he was so easily distracted that everything distracted him. Because he could no longer smell where the shoe had landed, it would have been sensible for him to turn and retrace his steps towards the dimness where the Frenchman was waiting, nose poised to pick up the sour odors again. But Anton was under the spell of a new set of aromas now. They began with sweet honeycomb and hot buttery popcorn flavors. This alluring combination seemed to emanate from the far end of the passage he was in and carried with it all the fragrances of a hot summer's day.